in Isaiah 51. And uh, Isaiah 51 has a uh, familiar image. There's a couple of images we're going to look at. And maybe you've heard the, um, the statement, uh, you know, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Uh, and it's to remind us to look at our past, to look at our origins, to look at our story and where we come from. Well, uh, that comes out of Isaiah 51. And a lot of these passages, we're going to be coming across these familiar sayings that have entered our language and our culture, like uh, uh, the one that we looked at last week, there's no rest for the wicked. Well, you see that in context uh, in the chapters uh, just before this and what it actually means. It means that there is rest for the righteous. And uh, the wicked are denied that because they can't, they can't find that peace and that assurance that comes from um, trusting in God. Here, the image of the rock from which you were hewn is calling on God's people to look at the story that they should know and to take their inspiration and their encouragement and their comfort from that. In uh, chapter 51, he says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. The look back goes to Abraham and Sarah. And, and Sarah is not even described as mother. She's described as the one who gave birth. And Abraham and Sarah are the, the, the origin of this group of people. Israel, Jacob, Zion. And if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, then you know what an incredible work of God it is. Because Sarah is not, she's not capable of having children, and yet she does have a child, a child that was promised, Isaac. Abraham was made, uh, there, was, there was a promise that God made with him. He promised to, um, to bless Abraham, and in blessing him, he said, I'll bless those who bless you, and those who curse you will be cursed. Um, Abraham then is meant to become the father of many. Um, and, and here he says, when I called him, he was just one man, and I blessed him and made him many. They are people who have been in exile. They feel like everything's ruined. They feel like there's no hope. And the message here of the prophet is, no, just like God called Abraham, someone who had no hope, who had no future, um, I'm going to make a future and I'm going to make a people out of you, even though you feel just as hopeless as Abraham and Sarah did. So they have to go back and look at that story and look at what God does. Um, you know, Paul will do the same thing with the Abraham story. Anyway, we read on in verse um, uh, 3. The Lord will surely comfort Zion, and he will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Going back to stories now, even with Eden, and uh, what is barren, what is destroyed, what is ruined, is going to become filled again with life. It's going to become fruitful. There's going to be joy. There's going to be gladness. 
the worst things do not end up being the last things when God is involved. And that's the message here. So even though they're in desperate situation, doom and gloom is not their future. This is very similar to uh, Jeremiah 29 when Jeremiah, uh, you know, we quote this one a lot. And uh, where God says through Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future. To prosper you, uh, not, you know, and, and that's God's promise, that there is a hopeful future even in the midst of destruction. Okay, this is Isaiah's version of that. Um, we go on to read, and, and, and what's important here is in verse 4, the emphasis now is on God's righteousness, and that's going to endure no matter what their physical state is, no matter what situation they find themselves in. So he says, listen to me, my people, and hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily, and my salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. The coastlands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and the inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults, for the north will eat them up like a garment, the worm will devour them, I'm sorry, the moth. The moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation, through all generations. So even though we see death and destruction, even though we see this ruin all around us, God's saying, yeah, but my righteousness endures through that. And that's where they're putting their hope. And so the, the prophet, and it's like a song, it's like a poem. It's calling them to, to remember that uh, it's like, it's like the, uh, the psalm that says his love endures forever. But here the focus is on the reality that they see around them of ruin, like the moth and the worm that, that, that eats things up and destroys things. He says, yes, that may be, but not my righteousness. Nothing's going to stop that. It's not going to fail. Um, this is a very biblical theme. You have um, the, the phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Uh, his mercies are new every single morning. That's spoken in the midst of ruin. That comes out of lamentations. And right there in the midst of destruction and ruin, that statement about God's faithfulness is being made. Well, this is the Isaiah version of that, that God's salvation will last forever and his righteousness will not fail. Um, so if that's true, then we can move on to verse 9 and we can uh, pray a prayer to God that he will, in fact, uh, come and do what he's capable of doing. And uh, the other image that's carrying us through this is the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is a representation of God's power. By his arm, by his hand, he's going to accomplish something, his own strength. He's going to do something. So, um, verse 9, the, you, you know, the prophet is leading us in this prayer. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. 
Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? All right, time out. I know. You know, <laughs> we're like, wait, Rahab? Well, I don't remember that in the Rahab story. Eh, this isn't that Rahab. Um, and it's difficult because in Hebrew we have consonants and no vowels. Um, your translations may read something differently. This is not Rahab, uh, the prostitute with the spies. and No, this is a different Rahab. This is a mythological figure. Um, you're going to see a similar mention of this Rahab or Rahab in Psalm 87.4. And um, this is very likely an image of Egypt. Okay? And it's, a, it's the name of a, of a mythical uh, monster of the sea, a monster of the deep. This is in no way to, to say that these things are somehow true, that these things are, were, were really there. They would understand this, that that's the, that's the image, that's the mascot, that's the totem that would remind us of, uh, of Egypt. You know, it's, um, I'll give you a for instance of how we still use this kind of stuff today. Uh, years ago when Reagan was, was running for president, you know, they, they, they had this ad and uh, it was about the man who says that there's a bear in the woods, you know. And some people, you know, are paying attention to that. And you have a brave man that goes out there. Now, what does that bear, that threatening bear in the woods represent? Russia. It represents the Soviet Union. That was the concern in 1980. And that became the focus of the Reagan administration to deal with the evil empire of the Soviet Union. So we understand that these animals symbolize things sometimes. This monster that God cut to pieces is a monster that represents Egypt uh, or some nation. In, in Psalm 87, Rahab or Rahab or however you pronounce it is thrown in with other nations like Babylon. These, and, and whether it's Egypt or not, the idea is this is an oppressor nation. This is a nation that threatens God's people. And there's always been some nation like that, whether it's Egypt, whether it's the Amalekites, whether it's Babylon or Assyria. There's always been some threat because if that oppressor nation wipes out God's people, then what happens to the promise of God? The prophet is telling us, you don't need to be concerned about that because God kept his promise. It's going to endure. His salvation is not going to quit. You go back and you look at the rock from which you come. Remember your stories. Remember your history, he says. Abraham and Sarah, no one would have given them a chance. God's righteousness brought them through it. The people in Egypt, oppressed. God chops up that monster. Further uh, evidence that this could very well be a reference to Egypt is when we keep reading, uh, the prayer says, Was it not you, Lord, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? There's your Exodus event. There's the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea for the rescue and the salvation of the people. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, 
Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Um, This is the 6th century version of Revelation. We read Revelation and we know that some of the things in there have taken place and some of the things haven't. And the symbolism and the poetry and the, 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 just the sheer music of it all confuses us sometimes because we want a literal answer. But it's, it's a bigger reality than we can just put in literal language. And so John is giving us this. Remember, John's had a vision. He had a vision of these things in heaven. And when we get anxious trying to figure out what the code of Revelation means, we realize that that doesn't take us anywhere, and we listen to people that give us their interpretations of the code, and then we back up for a second, and we say, wait a second, wait a second. I think the sum total of it is God's going to triumph. We just need to stay faithful. Yes, that's the meaning. Same thing here. He's saying, you know, when I go back and I look at the story, and I consider my story, I consider the rock from which I was hewn, I look at the story of my people, God, you've always been there rescuing us through these dire circumstances. So by all accounts, then, we'll go back into Zion. We'll be released from this captivity, and we'll go in singing songs of joy, and we'll have our heads lifted up high. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. And that's the prayer that he's praying. Um, In verse 12, uh, God says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Now, now here's the implication of that. If, that. if that's true, then why are we getting terrified of things that aren't going to last? Who are you that you fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass? That you forget the Lord your maker who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth. That you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea, so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place and who laid the foundations of the earth and who say to Zion, you are my people." They deal with the same stuff that we do in, in some form or fashion. Um, now I know I harp on this, but I, I think I have to because it's always out there. Uh, go look at your social media, your internet, your TV, whatever it is, and we're going to be told everything that we need to be afraid of. Uh, some other foreign power is going to destroy us all it's going to take down all of our computers we're all going to get coronavirus something you know something's going to happen it's uh you know the thing is we used to do what we kept it simple back in the 20s it's what we need to tell the young people today we kept it simple back then it was just nuclear bombs right just nuclear bombs that's all you had to worry about and as long as it was nuclear bombs we knew okay everybody's worried about the atomic bomb but you know, nobody's worried about the day my Lord will come. You know, now we've just gotten more sophisticated. We have all these worries and fears, and they're just nuclear bombs of one shape or another. And Isaiah is saying, look, those are the oppressors who are really, when it comes right down to it, human beings who are nothing but grass. Your maker is going to triumph. Why are you more afraid of them than you are joyous 
about what I'm going to do. And I think that is the good news that can captivate a world today is when you see and when that when when the world sees and hears from people who are not worried in the same way that the world is worried. In verse 17, we shift gears, we get another image. Um, here, the image is of the cup of the Lord's wrath. Now, now, again, this is an image that's not exclusive to Isaiah. You see it elsewhere. And I think it does help us understand something about that, that um, exchange that Jesus has with James and John when he says, can you drink the cup that I will drink, the cup of wrath? Jesus is not just making something up there. He's not just pulling a new image off the shelf. And James, because otherwise, James and John are going to back off and say, "What's he talking about? What are we having? Are we something to drink? I mean, what's going on?" They understand because this is this image of the cup is rich in biblical history. Uh, you'll see it in Jeremiah twenty-five, uh, for example. It's also in Ezekiel. Uh, it's in other texts. But here the idea is that, you know, when, when you, and, and again, you know, unless, unless we've grown up in a culture where strong drink is just a hefty part of what we do, um, the image may kind of escape us. But sometimes people have too much to drink and they pay for it, okay? They stagger. It was stronger than they thought. Maybe they didn't mix it right with water. And boy, it knocks them off their feet. They get dizzy. All right. That is an image of the consequences of something. An image of, of uh, you know, you hear about people who are, um, who are drunk on power. Okay, what does that mean? That means it's gone to their head. The expression gone to your head literally means that you're, you know, you're out of your mind, you're, 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 you're wrapped up in whatever this is. Here the cup of wrath is that God's punishment, they've, they've taken it in. They've drunk it down, and they're going to pay for it. Now in this case, the image of, of the cup of wrath, he's saying you've drunk it, you've dealt with it, you know, the hangover is gone. That's what this text is about. So he says, Awake and rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. He's telling them to wake up from their drunk. They, they're, they're waking up now. They're, they're back. It's a you know, cup of coffee, fresh day. He says, you know, it's over. You drank that. Um, among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword, who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. Uh, this drink was so strong that two generations... Or paying for it. How about that? Okay. And, and yeah, this makes sense of their story. What happened to them by being sent into exile is the consequences of their unfaithfulness to God. 
they started drinking the cup of God's wrath. They were, they were taking it in. You can't drink like that without paying for it. And that's the image here. They have to get through this because they took it in. They paid, their, they paid for the ticket. They have to take the ride. Okay. Um, Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what the sovereign Lord says, your God, who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. He says, I'm going to take that cup away from you that you're getting drunk on. It's, it's, you've had enough. He's cutting us off. He says, I'm cutting you off. I'm going to give it to these other people who've walked all over you. They're the ones who deserve it now. It's good news because he's saying, you're, you know, you're, your binge is over. You don't, you don't have to go through this anymore. Um, yeah, and, and so the good news here is, is that they've, they've dealt with it. They've gone through it. God's going to he's, he's help them with sobriety. They're going to get back to being sober. It's over. They've drunk it. They've dealt with the consequences. Now God's going to direct that wrath towards others. I, I think this little verse right here has helped me a lot, and I hope it helps you. To understand those dialogues when Jesus talks about taking the cup. Not only does he take the cup away from us, but he, he endures it for us. He drinks the cup. He deals with the wrath. So when he asked James and John, can you drink the cup that I'm going to have to drink? I mean, this, this cup of wrath has been filled up. And the image of the cup of wrath being filled up is... You know, all of this wrath has got to go somewhere. And God's filling that cup up, and it's just getting higher and higher and higher. Uh, we read about the grapes of wrath, and the idea is, again, this is stuff that's, that's coming to fruition. Okay, it's building up. And the image of the wine press and... Uh, you know, I think, I think learning a little bit about uh, the vintage and about that culture that was so much a part of them will help us understand these images. Um, you, would, you would, you know, pile up all the grapes. You put them in the vintage. You put them in the press. Everything's getting ready. And then it's all going to get squeezed down, and it's going to flow. That gave them a way of understanding that this wrath is being stored up, that it's being piled up. It's getting higher and higher and higher. And when it gets full, it's going to get pressed down and it's going to come flowing out. Now, that can be an image for God's wrath. It can also be an image for God's love. Uh, again, take the image for what it is and understand it as a visual way of understanding things like wrath and love. And Jesus takes that cup, and he puts different meanings into it. 
He talks to James and John about a cup that he's going to have to drink, the cup of wrath, and he says, can you endure that? Can you do that? And the answer, you know, and he says you will. Of course, the answer also is, no, we can't. We can't endure it. God's got to take it away from us um, because we're never going to stop piling up that wrath. But Then he also takes that cup, and he turns it into an image of new covenant, of new relationship, turns it into a celebration that says, okay, you know, uh, a toast is in order. We need to have, we're going to drink to a new covenant, to a new relationship. And this is going to be God's love. And it's, but it's a relationship that's been sealed with my blood. The shedding of blood always uh, seals a covenant. There's, there's something serious involved in every deep covenant with God. Uh, we will get into chapter 52 next week, and we're making our way over to 53, which will be very familiar to us and probably one of the most meaningful texts for the first century church. Right now, as you, you know, maybe you need to take communion tonight. Think about that cup of the new covenant. Think about the body of Christ, that he, he took on the wrath. And uh, let that be your guide as you consider it. If you've had communion today, Continue to reflect on that. Let's stand and let's sing together, and then uh, Michael will take us through the gospel uh, reminder one more time and send us out in prayer.